0: goodness. (laughs) Yeah, I'm not really speaking. I just always wear a headset. Um, (laughs) Good morning. So I'm the kind of person that if I'm given an assignment, like back in school, they'd give you a three-month research assignment. I would go home and write it that day because that's the kind of person I am. And this week, that didn't happen. Um, I had kind of a crazy busy week at work. I'm working for this lovely um, gentleman who is kind of a curmudgeonly person um, in the in the best sense. I mean, he really is delightful, uh, but he's old school and he does dictation live over the phone. 60 pages. So um, this sermon came together on Thursday night. So while that is normal for some of our speakers, it isn't normal for me. And then on top of that, Um, Yesterday, we adopted two kittens, so I'm a little frazzled, Um, but here we are. So this morning, I'm going to go off the rails anyway. Uh, (laughs) In other words, I'm going to cheat. You know, we've been in the book of Mark for a long time, right? Sorry, Andrew, I can't do this. (laughs) Hi. (laughs) Hi. My people in in the tech booth are laughing because I said I would never, ever move away from here, and you saw how far I went. (laughs) Um, Well, you probably know that each of the gospel accounts was written to a different audience, right? I mean, uh, the book of Matthew was written to Jewish Christians. Luke was written to Gentiles. Um, John was widely known to be a book written to the church. And Mark was written to Gentile converts living in Rome. So each of the Gospels has a bit of a different spin or a little bit of a different emphasis. And, uh, you know, we do that today. Um, Ben and I recently went on a trip to the British Isles, and if I were writing letters to people, um, I might stress different things. If I were writing to Catherine Anderson, I'd tell her all about the library at Trinity College and how it smells like books because she would resonate with that. Um, If I were writing to Brian and Kathy White... I would write about our pilgrimage to Iona and the long, long, long walk to St. Columbus Bay and how it's not wise to bring rocks back from it because they get heavier with every step. Um, If I were writing to Joyce Lister, I'd write about the gardens. Um, And if I were writing to Sarah Cameron, I'd talk about the uh, adventures in the Cotswolds. All were a part of my journey and all were true. Um... But when I would write to each of these people, I would write something that would relate to them and to get my point across. And sometimes that means leaving out certain details, because you don't want the letter to go on forever. And that's kind of what Mark did, and that's why I'm cheating, uh, because some of those details that he left out are quite cool. So what I'm going to be reading is a bit of a hybrid. I took the accounts of the various Gospels, and I did a bit of a mashup. I think the word is, and I added some details that I imagined might be true. And I'll just say that right up front. I did it. It's true. I messed with scripture. And I'm really hoping that the dire predictions in Revelations that talks about anyone who does that is blotted out of the book of life forever. Um, I'm hoping that that doesn't apply to me this morning. Um, but I think he'll be all right. And the passage is a bit long. So here's my second bit of rebelliousness. I'm going to fall afoul of a time-worn tradition that we have here. I'm not going to put the words up on PowerPoint. (gasps) I know. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Bar the doors, people. There's going to be a stampede. Um, Why? Because I don't want you to follow along with it. If you're reading, it goes straight to your head. And today I want it to go straight to your heart. So I'm going to read slowly, and I want you to do the best you can to enter the scene yourself. Consider what you might have seen if you were there. What might you have touched? What sense would have come out of the gardens? What sounds would you have heard? What was it like to walk in the Kidron Valley on the way to the garden with Jesus? What do you imagine was the topic of conversation along the way? When you entered the garden, what were your thoughts and feelings when you saw Jesus withdraw to a quiet place and pray so fervently that beads of of blood were dripping from his brow? In other words, I want you to be a part of the story this morning, not just an observer of it. And one final thing. Try to stay present with the story as it unfolds. And this is hard because we all know how it ends, right? But don't jump there too soon. This morning, let it unfold as as I read it. And pay attention to your thoughts and feelings along the way. Don't skip ahead. Don't be that person who reads the last chapter to see who done it. Okay? Well, let's start by relaxing a little bit. Take a few deep breaths. You all know how to do that. In through the... Like that. Just a couple. Just sort of center yourself and be here. And I'm going to have a couple pictures on the screen that will help you maybe set the scene. So you can either have your eyes open or shut. doesn't matter to me. But again, let your imagination go unchecked. We trust that the Holy Spirit will guide. And you just might be surprised at what draws your attention and what things surface. Okay? After the disciples and Jesus were full from having eaten the Passover supper, Jesus got up, he stretched, and he left the room. One by one, the disciples got up and followed him out of the door along the road away from Jerusalem. As they walked together, the mood was somber. Some of the disciples may have wondered why, and others may have been lost in their own thoughts. After they'd walked just over a mile across the Kidron Valley, Jesus headed toward the Mount of Olives and then to a place that was familiar to all of them, a garden called Gethsemane. This was a place where Jesus had taken them before and was a place of peace. Jesus said to them, Sit down while I go over there to pray, and while you wait, pray that you will not follow into temptation. He beckoned to Peter, James, and John, inviting them to follow along with him. And they noticed that Jesus seemed to be unusually sorrowful and troubled. After what seemed to be a long while, he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Will you please stay here with me and keep watch? They sat under a tree, and Jesus went a few yards away to be by himself. When Jesus was alone, he fell with his face to the ground and he prayed, Father, Father, Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. If it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. And an angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. But even so, Jesus continued to be in anguish and he prayed even more earnestly. And in their sleepy haze, John, Peter, and James noticed that his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. After a while, Jesus rose from prayer and returned to his disciples, but he found them sleeping. Simon, couldn't you keep watch with me for even one hour? He asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The Spirit is willing but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed in a similar way. My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. He came back again and found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy with weariness. Having been caught in their slumber, they were embarrassed and they didn't know what to say to Jesus. So Jesus left them once more and went away to pray a third time, saying the same thing. Finally, he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough then. Look, the hour has come and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Get up. Let's go. Here comes my betrayer. Judas, the one who betrayed him, was well aware of where Jesus was because Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having secured a cohort of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, led them there. These soldiers and temple officials carried lanterns and torches and many of them carried weapons as well in case they met with resistance. The mood of the crowd was mixed with excitement and anger. Many of them believed that Jesus had committed blasphemy and were clamoring for his death. But others were caught up in the dramatic scene. The soldiers' intimidating presence heightened the hysteria that pervaded the once peaceful garden. Jesus already knew what Judas had done and, in fact, was aware of all the things that would happen to him. So he quietly met the soldiers and the officers from the chief priests and said to them, Whom do you seek? And they answered, We seek Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I am he. Judas, who had betrayed him, was standing with the soldiers and temple officials. But when Jesus said to them, I am he, something amazing happened. The soldiers, the temple officials, and the entire crowd all drew back, and as one, they fell to the ground. Then Jesus asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if I am the one you want, why not let the rest of these men go? This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you have given me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. But Jesus said to him, Peter, Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Would you not have me drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the cohort of soldiers and their captain and the officers and the Jews arrested Jesus, bound him, and took him away. Well, let's just take a moment to breathe in that scene. What is it like? For you to be surrounded by an angry crowd like that—not just the priests and the temple officials, but the Roman cohort as well—what is it like for you to experience the chaos of Peter flailing away with his sword, and Jesus healing the ear that, Jesus, that Peter had locked, lopped off of Malchus's head? What was it like for you to watch Jesus, your Messiah, give himself up to be bound and arrested? Did you feel fear, anger, disappointment that Jesus didn't resist? What happened to your hopes and dreams and the desires that you thought Jesus was supposed to do and be? I hope sometime this week you'll take a few moments to think about those things, to put yourself back in that garden and to see what it was like. But now we need to move on a bit because there's a couple things I want to point out. First, And this is sort of Bible geek trivia. There is one section that appears only in the Gospel of John, which is one of the reasons I did the mashup. And here it is. So Jesus met the soldiers and officers from the chief priests and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, We seek Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he. They all drew back and fell on the ground. So Jesus asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let the rest of these men go. There's a lot of things going on in that garden. And nestled between the betrayer's kiss and the ear lopping, there's this little side note. Jesus doesn't hide from the mob. Rather, he confronts them gently and says, who do you seek? And the armed officials and soldiers respond, no doubt, in, um, in intimidating tones, as you can imagine, we seek Jesus from Nazareth. And Jesus says, I am he. It's a very normal conversation. But look what happens next. When Jesus said, I am he, they all drew back and fell to the ground. Now think of that. Consider who it was that fell to the ground. We have chief priests and temple officials. They're not used to bowing to anybody. The powerful ones in the Jewish culture and the religious hierarchy. But not only them, they're soldiers as well. I mean, think of it. We've all probably seen Russell Crowe in The Gladiator, right? This is not a guy who faints when some rabbi comes up and introduces himself. These were seasoned fighters, some of, the, some of Rome's best and bravest, and they were there to be sure that a riot didn't break out, um, to subdue an unruly crowd, which they assumed they would be confronting. They were expecting resistance, and there weren't just a couple of them. In John's Gospel, Judas is described as guiding a cohort attended by a tribune to place where they would find Jesus. A cohort was a tenth of a Roman legion, or about 600 officers, or soldiers, rather. And the tribune was the Roman commander of a thousand soldiers. Now, we don't know whether Judas had brought the whole cohort to Gethsemane or not, but there's no question that their purpose was to subdue a a riot or Jesus and his rabble-rousers. And they would subdue them quickly and decisively and take them into custody. So, if anything, they overprepared. And yet, when Jesus said, I am He, they as one fell to their knees, which previously they would have done to no one but Caesar. Now, this is just supposition on my part, but I am also remembering when God said to Moses what his name was. And his name was Yahweh, which is translated, I am. I am He. Jesus is fully aware of the power he has within him, and yet he willingly submits himself into the hands of his captors. And I will be putting captors, in quotes. Another thing to note is the grim realism of Gethsemane, and it's things like this that lead me to believe or strengthen my belief in the historic accuracy of Jesus' life and death. It's almost unimaginable that the early Christians, especially Mark, Mark, who accentuates Jesus' divine authority, would invent this scene where the hero is shown in weakness and seeming impotence. And yet, that's what he recorded. Well, as I say, we all know the story. But there are a few things that I think are important to notice here, things that have a direct corollary to our own lives, if we pay attention. Let's look at another verse. Going a little farther... Jesus withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them and fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My Father, Abba, everything is possible for you. If it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. But still being in anguish, he prayed even more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Have you ever asked God to keep something from happening? I have. I've prayed really earnestly, but I need to tell you, nothing compares to Jesus' prayer here. I have never come close to praying so hard that I sweated blood. And I bet you haven't either. So what's the big deal, you ask? I mean, we can all think of people who have approached death, even horrific death, And painful death with more courage than Jesus seems to. And while crucifixion is about as horrific as a death can get, it seems that must not be the sole reason for Jesus' anguish. Doesn't it strike you odd that Jesus, who had foreseen his death and marched resolutely to Jerusalem to meet it, now quakes before it? Well, here's a thought we need to fully grasp that Jesus was facing something far more than simply his own death. He was well aware of the purpose of that death, that he was, given, he was giving his life as a ransom for many, for us. In that garden, Jesus made the first payment on that ransom to will to become the sin bearer for humanity. And here, I'd like to share a quotation from a reference that we've been using throughout this series from the Gospel, of, the Gospel According to Mark by James R. Edwards. And Edwards says this, It is one thing, fearful as it will be, to answer for our own sins before a holy and almighty God. But who can imagine what it would be like to stand before God to answer for every sin and crime and act of malice and injury and cowardice and evil in this world's entire history. And even beyond that, the worst prospect of becoming the sin-bearer for humanity is that it spells complete alienation from God, an alienation that will cry, will shortly echo above the desolate landscape of Calvary. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, that puts the prayer in a little bit of a different light, doesn't it? And another thing to note is the title that Jesus uses in addressing God the Father. He uses Abba. This title, or actually an endearment, is a term of intimacy, trust, and affection. I think we've all heard that. And sometimes we've heard it translated daddy, which doesn't quite do it justice because, I don't know, it just doesn't. Um, And addressing God with this level of intimacy, boldness, and simplicity is not characteristic at all of of, uh, Jewish prayers. Rabbis did not presume that level of intimacy with God. Jesus, however, is crystal clear with respect to his consciousness of being God's son and of his willingness to do God's will, no matter how bitter, as a consequence of his complete trust in Father, in the Father and in obedience to his will. Jesus' divine power and authority that have characterized his life is now voluntarily returned to the Father in trust that the purpose of his life will be consummated in self-surrender and in death. Well, let's move on. As I look to the narrative of Jesus' life, It seems there are three existential crises that faced him during his 33 years on earth. The first is a crisis of identity and purpose. And that crisis took place in the wilderness at the beginning of Jesus' ministry when he was tempted to stray from his purpose and tempted to settle for less than he actually was. The second occurred here in the Garden of Gethsemane, and that was a crisis of will. It was in Gethsemane that Jesus confronted his own desires and will and ultimately and painfully and intentionally surrendered them to God's greater purpose with the words, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus' repeated reference to the hour and the cup speak of the ultimate purposes of God associated with the end of time. And these are images that are commonly used in apocalyptic literature. So as Jesus masters and surrenders his will, he does so with the full knowledge that the surrender is in alignment with the greater and ultimate purpose of God. The last crisis will occur on the cross, and that is the crisis of physical surrender. It is on the cross that Jesus' body is surrendered to the nails and spears, where he breathes his last. It is interesting that On the cross, when Jesus feels most excluded from God's presence is when he is, in fact, actually closest to God's will. The wilderness is a prelude to Gethsemane, and Gethsemane is a prelude to Calvary. In the wilderness, on the edge of a cliff, Jesus embraces his identity and purpose as he crucifies the temptation to seize power and authority for himself. In the Garden of Gethsemane, beneath the city, Jesus allows his will to be crucified as he surrenders his will to that of the Father's. And finally, on a hill above the city, he will relinquish his body to physical crucifixion, surrendering his very life into the hands of the Father. Three crises, one of identity and purpose, one of will, and one of the body. These are three crises that I would like to challenge all of us to consider for our own lives. I hesitate to say that we should pray for them. It's a dangerous prayer indeed. I wouldn't suggest that we pray for 40 days of being in the wilderness, being tempted by the devil, or sweating blood in Gethsemane, or certainly not crucifixion. But perhaps something a little more tailored to our lives might be in order. Let's look at a crisis of identity and purpose. If you ask me who I am and what is my ultimate purpose here on earth, here's what I would like to say I am the beloved of God and I exist to glorify him in all respects, bringing God's love, light, and shalom to all those I encounter. That's what I'd like to say. Why? Because that's true. I am the beloved of God. So are you, all of you. I exist to glorify God in all respects, bringing God's love, light, and shalom to all I encounter. That's your purpose too. That's why we're here. But I stand before you as one who struggles with my identity and one who is dual-minded in terms of purpose. I'm like the Apostle Paul. That which I want to do, I don't do. That which I do want to do, I don't. But that's only true as it relates to my alignment with my identity and purpose. And by that I mean I have one true purpose and one true identity. Whether or not I live into them successfully is another thing altogether. And the reason God has me here on earth is to glorify him and to bring his love, light, and shalom to anyone I encounter. That is the truth. Whether I believe it or not and whether I experience it or not does not take away from the truthfulness of it. And uh, now here I am looking straight at George and I'm going to use Carl Jung's name in a a sentence and I'm hoping you don't go, "Uh uh-uh, that wasn't right. But here I go with braveness. Anything else is what Carl Jung would call the false self? Yes? Yes? Maybe? No. Who knows? Okay. <laughs> I feel so much better. Anyway, the false self is the identity that I have curated and have assumed over the last 70 plus years based on what I perceive I am, based on other people's opinions and words about me, or of my, mo- my own misinterpretations and shadows. That's who I think I am. But who am I? I'm the beloved of God. So who do you think you are? You're the beloved of God. But do who you think you are and the reality of your belovedness always coincide? That's something to think about because it changes everything. So my crisis of identity and purpose is to adopt who I really am and to surrender the nonsense that I have adopted as me and embrace my true self as being the beloved of God and my true purpose to glorify God and reflect that glory to everyone I encounter along the way. Everyone I encounter. So much easier said than done. (laughs) And I would love to give you five keys to do it, but that's just silliness. Um, I'm not even going to waste time with that. We all are on our own journey and hopefully it's in that direction that journey finding finding our way back to our true selves the beloveds of god involves trust an intimate relationship with our god who would dearly love to lead us all in that direction it involves spending time with god in stillness and a posture of listening so that we will hear God's whispers as opposed to just give him a grocery list of things that we think he should do for us. Spending time in scripture, not just reading for information and facts, but reading to allow it to transform us, to change us to be a little more like that purpose that we have. The crisis of identity and purpose is that of stripping down to the nakedness of Eden and being quick to turn back to God when we stray. Which we will when we hear God call, Where are you? Okay, that's the crisis of identity and purpose. And if that wasn't enough, there's more. (laughs) Next is the crisis of will. Probably the hardest battle I will ever face is the surrender of my will to the one that I profess to follow. I'm not good at surrendering my will, I pride myself in independence and self sufficiency. But these, while they're an integral part of my personality, get in the way of my professed purpose. I cannot wholeheartedly reflect the glory of God when I insist on counting on calling the shots in my own life. And here's just a silly example of how successful I am at surrendering my will, even though I know full well that it is best for me. For the last 30 years, I've been trying to lose weight. And I've been marginally successful. I've probably lost about a ton. But the problem is I put it right back on plus one or two pounds. Why? Because I have never surrendered my will when it comes to weight loss. I try to do it by self-discipline. And this morning, we have this which is hilarious because it was actually in my sermon, this very donut that I prepared on Thursday, not knowing that it would be here to tempt me. And I look at it and I say, I will not eat that donut. 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 donut." Well, maybe I will, but I won't eat it next time. Or maybe the time after. Well, today, you'll notice there's no bites taken out of it yet. (laughs) Although it's sitting here, wafting its deliciousness to me. (laughs) I can't promise there won't be a bite out of it by the end of the sermon. But right now, I'm successful. But it is a very short-term success, I suspect. So what have I learned from this exercise? that I've got a shockingly low supply of self-discipline. Why? Because I weigh the consequences, and nothing holds a higher priority in my mind and my heart than the self-gratification that I get in the form of a doughy chocolate-dipped pastry. (laughs) Or a chocolate bar. Or macaroni and cheese. Or last night, dinner at the melting pot. (laughs) Wow, (laughs) I ate enough for three people. The surrender of will presupposes that there is wisdom greater than my own. Now I don't like that. I'm an Enneagram Five. There's not supposed to be will, or there's not supposed to be wisdom greater than my own. But turns out there is, and I don't like that either. I don't like the fact that I may not be the best captain of my own ship. Judging from the past years, I'm not even qualified to be captain of even a rowboat because I keep guiding me onto the rocks. (laughs) Surrendering the will is probably the hardest thing we will ever do, if we ever do it. But what if Jesus hadn't? And what if we did There's another thing to think about. Well, lastly, there's the crisis of physical surrender. It isn't easy to do this either. As a matter of fact, I'm horrible at it. In the 60s, there was a saying that was common amongst those of my age bracket, if it feels good, do it. Now, that statement is a testament to what the priority of the day was. Self-gratification, self-fulfillment, consumerism, and hedonism. And unfortunately, our culture has seemed to bought into that hook, line, and sinker. And sadly, Christianity has too. The prosperity gospel didn't just materialize out of thin air. It was fed by the indulgent culture that we're all a part of. And the church brought it in probably as an attempt to make the gospel relevant to the culture. They skewed things a bit to make it more appealing to an audience that they thought needed Jesus. Because it isn't really marketable to say to new believers, you know, I'd like to offer you a a life of sacrifice and self-denial. You know, that doesn't play. So they went another direction. God has a wonderful plan for your life. Follow him and all will be well. Which is ultimately true, but there are a few bumps along the way. In fact, it probably doesn't sit very well with you right now to think that the life that we have embraced or are considering embracing, and for those of you who are you know in that space um, I'm sorry to say, what we're called to is the life of sacrifice and denial. We are called to lay our lives down as Jesus did. It bears thinking about. But there has to be something between the ascetics, practices of bodily mortification and our cultures putting, down, or putting physical comfort and happiness above everything, right? One would hope. In preparing this sermon, I had to come face to face with a very uncomfortable truth. One of my highest values is to live a life of comfort and ease. I mean, I'd love to tell you differently, but that's what my life will show you. And this value must be surrendered if I'm ever going to live a life that reflects the glory of God. I've gotten the verse, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you as well, kind of backwards. As a matter of fact, in a couple of my Bibles, I've I've marked out, crossed out the last part, because I sort of felt like I can't handle that. Somewhere in my heart of hearts, I've translated that verse to say, if I get all the things, then maybe I'll follow you, God. And when I consider God in prayer, if I were to ask God what offering he would most like from me, I have a suspicion that surrendering that false notion would be pretty near the top of the list. Well, I'm not going to stand here and tell you how to live. I'm not even sure I'm standing here telling you how I intend to live. But what I am going to challenge you and me to do is to think about it. Do whatever you do intentionally and with purpose. We live far too much of our lives in reaction or on autopilot. And I guess what I'm saying is, wake up. Pay attention to what it is that is driving you and your behavior. Wake up to what lures and traps you joyfully dive into. Wake up to who you are and what you're here for. Wake up to a life that matters rather than a life that takes place while you're not paying attention. It is time we took honest talk of these things rather than just continue to go through life with blinders on, grasping to the notion that I'm okay and you're okay. And that's okay. Okay. Here's the reality. I'm not okay and neither are you. And that's a really good place to start. But we have to admit it. So this week I'd like you to consider a few things. Consider who and whose you are. And in light of that, what your purpose is. Consider your will. Does it serve your purpose Or does it have a mind of its own? Consider your physical being. Is it crying out for something that is actually masking a deeper need? And above all, make time and space to develop an intimate, deepening relationship with God. All good things come from that. And as your relationship with God grows, you will begin to sense more easily his leadings, and his whispers. There will be no change without surrender. And there can be no surrender without a trusting and intimate relationship with God, however you experience him, be it in nature, be it in the scripture, be it in prayer, be it in finding God in one another. Whatever calls to you and speaks, of, speaks to you of the divine, Follow that. There's a saying that is popular these days in a far younger demographic than mine, and it's sorry, not sorry. And honestly, I don't like it very much. But that's where I find myself this morning. I'm sorry this is not a really uplifting and happy message that will make you leave with a song in your heart and a smile on your face. But I'm not sorry at the same time because I think sometimes we need to chew on a dose of reality. I know I do. I know I needed this sermon. I needed to take a good, long look at my life in the cold, harsh reality of the Garden of Gethsemane. What does it all mean? What does it all mean to my life and how I live it? Is who Jesus is worthy of my surrender and trust? That's a big question. It does not have an easy answer. But the clincher is, assuming he is, what's stopping me from doing it? Well, as the band comes up and I close, I'd like to pray over all of us using a prayer inspired by Psalm 139. And as you listen, perhaps you'll find that it's the cry of your heart as well. Lord, you have seen what's in my heart. You know everything about me. You know when I sit down, when I get up. You know what I'm thinking even before I put words to it. You, want, you know when I go out to work and when I come back home. And in every moment, you know exactly how I live. Lord, even before I speak a word, you know all about it. You are all around me, behind me, and in front of me. And you hold me safe in the palm of your hand. I'm amazed at your knowledge of me and your love for me. It's more than I understand. God, you see what's in my heart, you know what is there. Show me what you see, O oh Lord. Give me the courage to look at what you see. Tell me if there's anything in my life that is hindering me from an unrestrained relationship of love with you. Give me the desire to listen and to allow you to transform me. Help me to live this life that you gave me in a way that reflects...